Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Professor Peter Wong of the University of Colorado Law School. Peter, it is great to see your face today. Joel, it's great to, to have my face be seen and to see your face also. We're going to talk about the experience of lawyers today. We're going to look at some statistics, but why don't we kick things off with a look at the past where there's some laws and some rules that we as Americans are not very proud of. Yes. Let's talk a little bit in terms of a brief history about how we got here. And, and, and there is a brief history. There is a history of systemic racism and violence against Asians or Asian Americans an exclusion from American society, starting with the uh, robber barons, uh, Leland Stanford and uh, Crocker, who brought Chinese men to help build the Transcontinental Railroad. So the Chinese men were um, lowered in baskets with TNT. In, in, that, in, in those times, TNT was highly unstable. And sometimes they just blew up. And that's where the, the phrase, the expression, a Chinaman's chance in hell came from, which I didn't know. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it was just very risky. And the Chinese people who did the Transcontinental Railroad, none of them are pictured in a photograph where the two lines meet. And they had to pay for a room and board, whereas white workers did not. And then after that was completed, a lot of the American white workers were afraid. There were too many hardworking Chinese people. So there was something passed called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which today, to this day is the only law in America specifically targeting a racial group and excluding them. And the, the argument's quite interesting because the argument was that the Asian women were loose morals and the Asian men were um, unfair competition because they only ate rice, which is cheap compared to Americans who had to eat meat. It was just a very bizarre. Seems like ignorance compounding on ignorance. Yes, it was like ignorance squared cube to the nth power. And you go, what the heck, heck is going on here? Yes. So, Professor, how do we go from this horrible history where Asians are not only being discriminated against, but excluded by law yep. to a world where yep. Asians are stereotypically viewed as a, quote, model minority? This coining of the phrase model minority by the sociologist Thomas Sullivan, who wrote this article in the New York Times magazine about how Japanese Americans who had suffered internment, who had been basically their economy, their country was devastated in World War II, yet they were very productive compared to black Americans who, yes, suffered slavery, but they've had 100 years to recover. So he pitted the two groups against each other. This concept of model minority, how does that relate specifically to lawyers or to Asian Americans in the legal profession? Yeah, so the model minority, I think, myth, if you will, or stereotype is the idea that Asian Americans are good at certain things, working hard, not necessarily social, emotional intelligence or team play. And so that I think shows up in a, well, Tim Wu, who was a professor at Virginia Law School, then Columbia Law School, then part of the Biden administration. He talks about this idea that Asians often want the most bitter labor. They want to do the toughest document review the most, um, you know, painstaking, labor-intensive, 
uh, as a way to prove their worth. And the football analogy is like, I'm going to be a guard or an offensive tackle. And if I do it so well, you might say, hey, Peter, do you want to try being quarterback like Tim Tebow? <laughs> but most white people would never, they would say, that's beneath me. I don't do document review. I don't, I'm the idea man. I'm the rainmaker. I'm going to get, you know, I'm, I'm the big picture person. The detail, the blue booking, that's for the Chinese people or the Koreans or the Japanese. That, you know, it's like something like for a robot. It's not something I as a human who's so special should be doing. And I think it's funny now with the chatbot GPT. You know, I don't know if you heard about um, it took a law school exam. We got 70%. I've spent a lot of time looking at what these uh, large language models can do for when it comes to lawyering. Right. And I think it'll take away some of this tedious document review stuff. And then I think all lawyering in some sense involves, you know, going back to the thing I mentioned by Len Riskin, managing conflict mindfully. A lot of lawyering is people skills. A lot of lawyering is interpersonal conflict or conflict resolution, right? And framing the resolution of dispute in a way that's mutually acceptable to both parties. So I think the model minority stereotype feeds into the attrition or the perception that lawyers who are Asian are good as worker bees, but not good as partners. Yeah, we've spoken about this before you mentioned that he's a good lawyer, but, or he's a hard worker, but it's some, you know, it kind of reminds me of the lawsuit against Harvard where they're they're docking these students for low personality that maybe there's there's some biases that are happening that perhaps despite getting the work done on time and ahead of schedule and done well they might they might not have what it takes to be partner material right and i think the same thing is true um, of the jewish students um before the asians right with harvard saying you know we have too many jews and the jews are hardworking, but um they just don't have the right connections, family connections, or... Which was almost certainly true, right? It's almost certainly true, but it's self-fulfilling. <laughs> it's, right. it's caused by discrimination and exclusion. So um, almost every legal pundit, scholar, commentator says that affirmative action is dead. Uh, I'm not sure... How dead? <laughs> yeah, how dead is it, or whether that's a good or bad thing. It's like when, what's his name, Mark Twain's, uh, when he went to his funeral, right? There's a concept in psychology called the hot stove effect. And the idea is that a cat, which bur burns itself on a hot stove, will avoid all hot stoves. It will also avoid all cold stoves because cats, cats cannot tell when a stove is on or off. So it overlearns. So what I, why I bring this up is because if you've had one experience with a Chinese person or Asian person, and they were hardworking, good at math, they worked you, you know, over, they, they outworked you, but you, you know, thought, you know, they don't, they don't have the people skills or they don't have the networking connections I have. That's what's going on there, I think. And that somewhat becomes self-fulfilling. If you don't have inclusion, those people will never get in the door because if you come from old family money, right? If you're someone who's connected, I'm never going to replicate that just by working hard or solving math problems. Um, and it's related to the second, I think, myth, which is the um, perpetual foreigner syndrome. Right when people say to Asians, not just Asians, other other people, where are you from? And I say I was born in Pittsburgh, Monroeville. They go, no, really, where are you from? They want you to say uh, some country in Asia. Right. They want me to say my mother was born 
uh, in China, moved to Taiwan. My father was born in China, moved to Hong Kong. But that's a because if you ask most Americans, if you go back two or three centuries, they would have similar stories, right? The only people who were Native Americans were Native Americans, right? So, I mean, so yeah, why don't we talk a little bit more about about that perpetual foreigner、uh, concept? I mean, how did from from what you've read or from your anecdotal experience, that can be. That can, I mean, it's not the same as as coming out with a racial slur,、uh, but it doesn't make that individual feel part of the group necessarily. It doesn't make them feel included. Right, I agree. So I went to a, I, I attended a webinar last Friday night. The guest on Friday was someone named Jeff Cohen, who's a social psychologist in the Stanford School of Education. So he's written about interventions and about belonging. He's got a book out called Belonging. And he says a lot of people don't feel they belong. Men are not, you know, white men tend to belong because they are the majority. Women, minorities, minority women, they may feel they don't belong. And a lot of what DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is meant to foster inclusion and belonging. You know, I think all of us, I myself certainly, have gone to DEI trainings where I go, this is like a waste of time. Um, I, I I know all this and I believe this, but I think to myself, if I was a raging, seething racist, I'm not sure this would like convince me. I'm not sure. This goes back to the implicit, explicit bias. Nowadays, I think people who are racist are smart enough not to be like wearing a Ku Klux Klan hood, not to work, right? But what the recent spate of racial hatred crimes has reminded us. Is explicit racism, good old-fashioned racism, is here to is here still, and part of it is people not feeling they belong, right? So,、um, Jeff Jeff、uh, Jeffrey Cohen and his、um, colleagues did these studies where they like told women and black students, "I I think you're going to do well in this class," and the student does well because they think they they belong. They've also used this intervention to get at political debates because a lot of times. Political debates are just people talking past each other. Neither side is going to change their beliefs because people treat their beliefs like children or possessions. You can't attack my beliefs; they're my kids; they're mine. And oftentimes, your beliefs are the beliefs your family, friends, and everyone you know has. So you're not going to change it so easily unless all of you change it like a herd kind of behavior. And what he suggests is that the interviewer says, "You know, I want to hear your beliefs." I'm not going to just dismiss you. That little moment of belonging may get the person to say, "Okay, I'm curious to see why you believe what I think is wrong." And 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 the idea is to forge connections, to build bridges, and surprisingly, to have these interventions not just be momentary, maybe to last longer. And so, you know, I I think absolutely what you're saying is the case that inclusion is something that our country, you know, like Obama said. And I'm revealing my political leanings.、Uh, our country has great promise. That promise has not been lived up to yet. We are not post-racial or post-racism. Whether we are or not depends on how each of us behaves, right? And I think, and and in my book, I try to say there are at least five strategies I think to disrupt racism. One is humor, because when people laugh, that brings everyone together. Like people will say, "Oh yeah, that's I that's, love that," right? Two is to say, look, let's try to build bridges, 
And three is to say, let's try to have positive mindfulness and realize we're all together. Like global climate catastrophe doesn't care if you're white, black, yellow. If we destroy the planet, that's it. And another one is um, um, positive uh, norms and cultures, organizational, social norms, organizational cultures. And the last one is a uh, conversation, learning the art of conversation in a way that not just communicates, but builds connection. So I think those five, I don't know what you want to call them, strategies or interventions, I'm not sure what the term is, um, are ways to sort of disrupt racism. But I think racism in some sense sort of a, I don't want to say mindless because that sounds pejorative. Racism often is a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, I hate those people because whatever. Well, have you had contact with those people lately, right? It's like the hot stove effect. That's why I brought it up. Or, or ever, in some sense. Or cases. ever, right. If you avoid all hot stoves, you never know. Maybe the stoves have changed. Maybe they're self-cooling now, or there's a new stove or something. In other words, a lot of times people have these beliefs, and then they won't test them. Because if you really believe this thing will hurt you, whether it's a hot stove or a Chinese person or whatever, you don't want to have anything to do with them. But if you're more open, and that's part of being mindful to say, hey, let's try it out, you know. Certain types of racism and bias won't survive engagement. It, 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 is, it, it, is, it is, I think, the case that engagement is, is scary to some people, right? Another thing that we've that I read about in, in, in your work and in, in, in some other uh, writers is this concept of of invisibility or cloak of invisibility when it comes to um you know who's going to lead this next project and uh yeah maybe you could explain that a little bit sure the cloak of invisibility is only a good thing if you want it it's a bad thing if you want to be visible right and i think i forget there's a there's a i have to find it for you a youtube uh video called the glass ceiling at harvard law school about how women, and they interview uh, Lonnie Guineer, among others, um, are sort of invisible to the administration, to the to a lot of people. And, and it's partly because of history. And it's not just women, because um, Lonnie Guineer talks about the canary in the coal mine, but it's minorities. And I, and I often said this, when I, when I teach, you know, I'm shocked how some of my students who are white males will just say stuff and I go, why would you not think before you talk? Whereas women and minorities will not say anything because they're thinking. And my partner used to say to me, she goes, when you're quiet, you may not know what's going on, but you don't reveal it. When you speak out, you reveal your ignorance. I said, yes, but oftentimes Americans mistake quietness for boredom, apathy, uh, and anything, even if it's something stupid, is better than nothing, right? But I don't know. It's Part of it's cultural, I think, right? Is it... Um, like a guy will often say a lot of things that are not necessarily the brightest, but no one holds it against them. But if a woman or minority says something that's not necessarily the brightest, they go, oh, there you go. Wow. That's, that's the women yeah. and minorities, they, right? I mean, I remember the first day of law school, I was petrified because I was in CIPRO and the professors, and I was sitting in the back row. I was backbenching. The professor goes, Mr. Wang, how do you start a lawsuit? And I said, how do you start a lawsuit? No need to repeat the question, Mr. Wang. Simply answer it if you can. And I said, uh, Mr. Wang, did you realize there was an assignment to read FRCP 1 through 12? Uh, yes. Well, what's the answer, Mr. Wang? I said, I, I guess you go to the courthouse. No, Mr. Wang, you file a lawsuit. And I thought, why? Because I remember throwing up. I just felt like I was in paper chase, right? 
And it was just sad because I thought you didn't have to do that. And when I went to Penn, I will not name the person. She said to me, what you should do in the first day of class, because you're Chinese, is pick on a white male and just embarrass that person. Whatever they say, make them, you know, that way no one's ever going to. And I said, that's not my style because I would be It's like the prison mentality. Right. <laughs> it's like a prisoner of war mentality, right? And part of it is if you've been abused as a child, you often carry on the trauma to the next generation, right? Maybe if they were taught in law school like this, they feel that's it's now their turn to uh, pass on the harm. Whereas I want to say to students, look, I'm here to help you learn. I'm not here to harass you. I'm not here to embarrass you. I may embarrass myself, right? Because I may say something silly. I mean, I often had students email me and say, I'm in securities practice now. Can I ask you a question? And I say to them, I don't practice securities law. I teach it every spring. So in the fall, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't keep up with it. Right? <laughs> it's not really true, but it's a good joke, right? Not bad. Yeah. But I, I do feel like you were saying, invisibility is a big problem, right? And part of it is cultural or gendered, right? Women are not raised. I mean, people people will say she's an aggressive woman. Very few people say he, she's, he's an aggressive guy. Someone might say, oh, that's an aggressive Chinese person, right? So, it, but that's sort of saying that we don't expect women and minorities to to be bossy or aggressive or to to lead. So when I taught a seminar on leadership and lawyers, I said, I was very happy the class had more women than men and more minorities than white people. And I said to them, you know, leadership is for everyone. It's a skill you can learn and practice and get better at. You know, part of being a leader is inspiring people. Part of being a leader is emotional intelligence. Part of being leaders is understanding interpersonal dynamics and um, negotiation, right? You, you have to compromise. You can't get everything. I mean, I remember as a kid, listening to JFK talk about going to the moon before the end of this decade. And, you know, and I thought, I don't know what we're doing, but I'm on board. <laughs> you're inspired. The way you say that is a good reminder that diversity and inclusion insights don't have to be taught through scolding. It could be, yes. <laughs> it yes. could be, hey, you know, as a leader within your firm, you should be aware that people may not all have the same leadership style. You know, they may not all, it's not necessarily the person who speaks up first who has the best idea. And if you want to get right. the best right. results, you need to know that because yep. sometimes the person with the, the best insights is hesitating a second before speaking because they, they're thinking right. through some nuance. Right. They're, they're the quiet one doing it introspectively, like stage two of my thought, as opposed to let me just announce to the world my silly ideas and have you shoot them down. And I like the way you said that. You can have diversity, you know, inclusion without scolding. I think you can have anything without scolding. And as a general, I'm not a parent, but I, as a general, I think scolding is not a good parenting technique. And I think it's not a good leadership technique. Embarrassing people just makes people scared. Now a quick break for our attorney CLE listeners. The code for this podcast is 12088. Again, that's 12088. And now back to the interview. As somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about psychology and how to get people to do things, yeah. how, how do we get us as lawyers to re-examine some of these biases? And how do we improve our understanding, I suppose, of one another? So those are excellent questions. And I think 
I can give you two slightly different answers. One is self-interest, yeah. right? If you say to people, look, as a, as a law firm partner or managing partner, you're losing out. You're not getting the best and brightest. You're not hiring diverse viewpoints if you just have these biases. If you hire everyone as a clone of everyone else, it's not, not as good for your firm because in the future, you're going to have, you know, more um, women, more minorities in society. So having people like that on your law firm, like if you go to the law firm websites, I don't see yellow people on most law firm websites, right? And and probably you didn't see women in the 50s or whatever, or you saw less of them, right? Now there's more. And so part of it is to convince what's in their self-interest to be more inclusive and foster diversity because people have different perspectives, different viewpoints, different uh, ways of approaching problems, different mindsets. The other is, I think, to appeal to our commonality. To say, look, you may not like people, you know, people who are different, but in some sense, these differences, especially skin color, the amount of melatonin in someone's body is really skin deep and you cannot judge a book by its cover. In law, we have a tradition of teaching people analogical reasoning, respect for precedent. These are all good things. On the other hand, in business school, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship, we teach people creativity. We teach people to, you know, um, think outside the box, whatever that means. I'm not sure why they're in a box. Um, but, you know, so the idea is maybe like if you had a JD MBA on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, <laughs> they're thinking about precedent and logical reasoning. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, they're thinking about how to break precedent, how to, sh you know, shake up the industry, how to do something no one's done before. And in some sense, what we really want is sort of a combination, right? And, and, and in some sense, I think in law school, we err maybe on the side too much of respecting authority and precedent, which is important. Um, we don't give enough credit or we don't teach enough about leadership, emotional, so-called soft skills. And one of the soft skills is recognize the importance of diversity, diversity of thought, opinion, background, perspective. These are things useful in any team. And, and, and legal work, at least to this date, still is teamwork, right? It's not... Um, solo i mean you know you have a team of people even if you have a lead on simple stuff you don't need a team but on simple stuff you don't need a law firm either i mean uh, you'll get a chat chat gbt chatbot gbt i was going to tell you so this is before um what's his name bill cosby became known as the serial rapist he was known as a comedian and um he said this joke that <laughs> he said this joke that it's true though he said this joke that uh his wife was a uh, she had an 87% average in college. And it goes, what that meant is if you asked her any question, she would get it right 87% of the time, which is not what it means. But I thought it was funny because I thought, um, A, like, you know, now people won't talk about the Cosby show because, you know, it started a rapist. Um, and, and I thought, yeah, but I mean, that, that's the question. Can you separate the rapist from the comedy? I don't know. Um, some people say no. Some people say yeah. Similarly, can you? It's a tough one. It is a tough one. Similarly, can you separate like the law firm partner from the discrimination? Right. I mean, you would like to have ideally someone who's not neither practices an implicit nor explicit uh, racism. And I think people who are Jewish, people who are Chinese, people who have experienced racism, women, you know, sexism, they may be more sensitized 
to being inclusive. I'm not saying white males can't understand that because that's also a form of racism. It's reverse racism, right? Um, and that's not to say that uh, people who've experienced it don't dish it. Right, right, exactly. I think a lot of the people who are the worst offenders are people who, who um, it's like when we talk about Socratic dialogue, right? I always joke to, when I talk to my students, I go, who is this guy Socrates, as Keanu Reeves says? And I said, what, what was that all about? Um, and, and, and I say to them, I said, part of it was going to teach you, what was the, the phrase that uh, John Hausman uses in the paper chase? You come into law school with a mind full of mush. And some people would say, and you leave with a mind full of mush. It's just organized differently, right? Um, but the idea is you learn to think. At least that's what we say. We say we're teaching people to think like lawyers. But if you ask my mother who teaches at Emory Medical School, what are you teaching your med students? She doesn't say I'm teaching them to think like doctors. If you ask people who teach at business schools, I have friends who teach at business schools. They don't say I'm teaching them how to think at business schools. They think I'm teaching them to be business school. I'm teaching them to be doctors. Why do we say we teach them to think like lawyers? I guess probably because you don't have to go into the practice of law. Or if you go into practice of law, a lot of CEOs or titans of industry were former law school grads, don't practice law. I do hear that um, uniquely with with law. Yes. Um, but maybe that's my own my own exposure biases and i do think law school does make you look at things from a risk perspective that it's hard to get rid of <laughs> it is well that's part of the thing is turning it off and on right i had a student when i was teaching torts he said to him i'm winning every argument with my girlfriend i love it and i said to him she's not going to be your girlfriend for long yeah <laughs> yeah before we let you go how can we improve diversity how can we improve the way the way we you know treat and respect one another and i suppose does law play a role or is it more you know policies is it more education so that's a great question to end on i will refer to martin luther king who said that you have to change people's hearts and minds law cannot change hearts and minds but he goes law can prevent someone from lynching me and that's a start and I think there's something to that, right? Law can only regulate observable behavior, like pushing someone off a subway platform. Law cannot regulate effectively people's thoughts and beliefs. Yet really what we want to do is change thoughts and beliefs because that will change behavior. So this is a problem that I think um, is not just true of racism, sexism. Like I want to lose weight. I know I will be healthier I know I should eat less. It's not my lack of knowledge. And I think I'm not alone. Most Americans understand I have to be less sedentary. But the mere fact that I know all this, that doesn't make it happen. There's no magic pill, red pill, blue pill, right? It requires work. And sometimes people don't want to work. Sometimes people are what others call lazy, what I will call cognitively miserly. <laughs> people want to... Yeah. And so um, when I was on sabbatical, I lost 80 pounds. You may ask how. I got up and I, I, and I worked out like crazy and I ate better. I lived above a Chinese vegetarian restaurant, vegan restaurant. And, and people, when I went back to Colorado, said to me, you've lost 80 pounds. Do you have cancer? <laughs> I said, no. But within a year... I gained it all back. And then with COVID, I gained the COVID 15 or 30. 
right? Because you're, you know, and I thought to myself, because I was talking to someone, they go, do you want to lose weight? I said, sure. I want to listen to me. Do I want to be not racist, not sexist? Sure. Do I want to be not a math snob? Sure. But these are things I have to work on. It's not just have to say, I want them to happen. I said, someone else is going to do the work. I have to be willing to do the work. I have to say, look, I'm going to work with people who don't know math. I'm not just going to say, if you don't know calculus, I'm not going to talk to you. Because you know other things that I could be useful, could help me. Not just that. You know, it's not. So that's the selfish part, right? The other part is, hey, you're a human being, whether you know calculus or not. You're a carbon-based life form. We're in the, we're, we're, we share certain things. May not be math knowledge, but if you don't know math, there's space in your brain that you know something else that I don't know. One of the realms of self-improvement, which yes. I, you know, makes it perhaps more approachable. You know, I can, yes. I can improve my, uh, my tennis game. I can, you know, <laughs> yes. improve my relationship with my mother. And maybe yes. I can realize that I'm, I'm kind of bigoted in some ways that I'm unaware of that perhaps <laughs> yeah. I should be. I like that. Peter Wong is a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. His new, Professor, what's your new book? It's titled Disrupting Racism, and the subtitle is Essays by an Asian American Prodigy Professor. That's not my subtitle. I don't even know what that means, Prodigy Professor. Is this because oh. you graduated from college at 15? <laughs> yes, this is because I graduated from college at it's actually 17. 17, okay. okay. Well, Professor Wong, thank you for your time. Uh, it's it's always lovely to speak. Thank you, Joel. It's, it's actually been very thought-provoking for me. The last thing you said made me think about, um, you know, a, a, a nice way to frame anti-racism as one of many self-improvement areas. I think that's actually very nice. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit talksonlaw.com. If you're earning MCLE credit for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.